Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. We've been looking (coughs) at the resurrection. Um, The resurrection of Jesus. And now we're shifting over to our resurrection. Hallelujah, I won't have this either in the resurrection. Hallelujah, I'm looking forward to that. Today's sermon is entitled Golden Crowns. Golden Crowns. There's a story describing the torments of hell. The preacher warned, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you ain't got no teeth, called an old farmer grinning up at him with nothing but gums. And the preacher roared back, then teeth will be provided. <laughs> Less whimsical, but to be honest, maybe even a little funnier, is this actual letter, a real letter to a newspaper advice column. Real letter. Dear Ann Landers, my sister has been after me for several years to make a will. I hate to even think about where I want my money and possessions to go after I die. Now, this may sound crazy, but I have six large gold crowns in my mouth, and I know they're worth a lot of money. I firmly believe there will be a resurrection, and it will come sooner than most people think. I want to be ready. If I leave my gold to a relative, I would then need to have the crowns replaced after I'm resurrected. (laughs) Dentistry may also be a lot more expensive by the time I rise again. Also, the waiting time to get an appointment might be even worse than it is now. I wouldn't dream of discussing this problem with anyone I know, but it weighs heavily on my mind. You are the only one I can go to for help without looking like a fool. Please guide me. Signed, Looking Ahead in North Carolina. There's a lot of uncertainty, even naivete, about the resurrection and the afterlife, even among Christians. We think in very concrete pictures. Well, you know how it is. How dressed in white linen robes we shall stroll streets of gold in the new Jerusalem. Or else we flutter harps in hand from cloud to cloud in a cartoon heaven. Now, in our culture at large, I suspect most folks today assume that at death, the soul leaves the body and sweeps away to a place of light and peace. They assume, however, that even without a body, that souls somehow will be recognizable as the persons they were on earth. 
They tried to avoid thinking of the afterlife as a physical existence, but they can never quite escape it. Of course, all of the ideas of the afterlife are a little bit unreal, to be honest. <coughs> Have you ever noticed that in pictures, paintings, and, and drawings, and so on, of angels, their robes have openings for their head and for their arms or their hands and an opening at the bottom for their legs, but there's no openings for their wings. Their wings are simply attached to their robes. That doesn't seem to me very practical, but hey. You see, our imaginings of the afterlife are correct in emphasizing how different the afterlife will be from the present life, but they don't really offer much help to troubled saints like our poor lady of the golden crowns. Their very concreteness can be a stumbling block both to those who take them quite literally as descriptions of heaven, as well as to those skeptics who fail to understand their symbolic intent and they reject the whole Christian gospel, therefore, as a fairy tale. Remember, your, our skeptics tend to be as or even more literally minded than fundamentalist Christians are. Those who are opposed to Christianity are literally minded. And that's why they reject anything that to them smacks of fairy tale. Now, this is, today is the fifth Sunday of Easter. We've been looking at the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for our thinking about God, for our understanding of the future. And today I want to look at what we profess in the Apostles' Creed as the resurrection of the body. It's one of the distinctive beliefs of Judaism and Christianity. The most detailed passage on the future resurrection of the dead in the New Testament is in Paul's first letter to Corinth, chapter 15. Some of the Corinthians doubted that the dead would be raised at all. Maybe they thought they would float around as disembodied souls. Or maybe they thought somehow they were already raised with Christ now and that this body was their resurrection body. We can't be sure. Regardless, Paul set out to clarify for them the when and the how of the resurrection. And I want to read a, a portion of what's, of course, a much longer discussion, and I'm going to pick out the verses 35 through 50. The Apostle Paul says, Someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Oh, fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. 
But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And not all kinds of flesh is alike, but there's one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun and another of the moon, another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in, its, in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so were those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven so are those who are of heaven. Just as we born the image of, this, of the man of dust, so we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Okay, Paul begins with the certainty in this chapter, with the certainty of Christ's resurrection, a certainty based <coughs> not so much upon the empty tomb, but rather the series of clear and distinct appearances of the risen Lord to his followers, to Peter, to the eleven and on and on to James, the other apostles, and eventually to Paul himself on the way to Damascus. That's what happened. That's what we preached. That's what you believed. That's what changed your life. So the first thing Paul points out then to his readers is the connection between Christ's resurrection and ours. We talked a little bit about this last week. That is, if you deny the resurrection of the dead, generally, then you're denying Christ's resurrection. If, on the other hand, you believe Christ was raised, then it means that the other dead will, like him, also be raised. They're connected. There is an intrinsic connection between what happened to Jesus on our behalf and what happens to us. He took our death 
so we can share his life. He suffered for us, and when we suffer for him, we share in his sufferings. What happens to Christ happens to us. We share this connection. And because he now lives, we will live with him. The second thing that Paul affirms is that if the dead are raised, then they will be raised bodily. For the Hebrews and for Paul, there there is no such thing as a naked soul. Body, soul, spirit are essential parts of a human being. Paul does not and he will not separate them. They're always mentioned together. There is no autonomous soul or independent spirit separate from the whole person. A person only exists as an entirety. You are an integrated, organic unity of tangible and intangible parts. Okay, do you get that? You are a unity of tangible and intangible parts. And we're going to return to this in just a moment. But for right now, when you are going to live again in the resurrection through Christ, then it is only as a whole person, a new, integrated, and perfected existence with some kind of body. The third thing that Paul points out to his readers, however, is the special quality and distinctiveness of the resurrection body. The resurrection body is not going to be identical to our earthly bodies. The resurrection of the dead is more than merely the reconstruction and reanimation of decomposed corpses. Thank God. (laughs) You know, I love my mama, but I'd rather see her more like I remember her and not like now, where we lost her many, many years ago. Rather, there's a fundamental transformation. What you sow is not the body which is to be, but it's a bare kernel, Paul says. This is the kernel. The body of flesh and blood as we know it is temporary. It's perishable. It's subject to decay and death. And the older I get, the more I decay. They didn't really warn me about that when I was a teenager. When they were telling me the facts of life, they left out all the most important parts. Grandparents, tell your grandchildren, no, they won't believe you anyway. (sighs) Oh, well. But the body that God is going to give us is imperishable. If we're going to live in eternity, it has to be a body fit for eternity. 
Okay? I don't want to be decrepit forever. The few years I'm going to be decrepit on this earth, as far as I'm concerned, is enough. I'm looking for something fresh and lasting. So the resurrection, Paul would assure us, <coughs> it's going to take place without gold crowns. Gold crowns, wheelchairs, diabetes are all part of the old world that's passing away. We're going to turn in these outdated and obsolete models for new ones, totally new ones. Bodies will be provided. Bodies appropriate for the new existence as these physical bodies were appropriate for this earthly existence. Can I hear an amen on that? Amen. Yeah. See, the Holy Spirit can talk right through those masks. He, they really can. Now, if you'll notice, beyond that, Paul will not venture. There are no descriptions of heaven, no gates of pearl, no streets of gold, no wings, no harps. I'm actually, I'm hoping there will not be harps in heaven, at least not, I'm, not that I'm going to be expected to play one. You would not want to hear me try to play a harp. And for most of you, I would probably not want to hear most of you try to play. <coughs> There's one of, my, one of my favorite cartoons. Just throwing this in, I can't help it. And... Uh, Brenda here is so game, she'll just roll with it. I appreciate that. But one of my favorite cartoons is from the uh, Far Side. Yeah, if you know Far Side. And there's two, two pictures, and on the one, there, there are frumpy little souls lined up to go into the... And a tall angel is there saying, Welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to heaven, here's your harp. And in the next, next uh, scene, there are frumpy little souls lined up in front of a cave with fire coming out. And there's a tall devil there saying, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. But we don't hear about any of that from Paul. Paul's not going to go there. Paul avoids concretions, you know, concrete descriptions, but he speaks intentionally in metaphors and analogies. He says, like kernels and wheat, like the sun and the stars, like the image of the man of heaven. Paul's well aware that he's scanning a far and, and faint horizon beyond whose bounds he cannot yet see, but he can only speculate. These are things that defy language. They have to, because our language is born out of our human experience. We have words only for what we've seen and heard. 
If we haven't seen it, if we haven't heard it, we're not going to have a word for it. Or we won't think of it when we need it. For what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human tongue declared what God has prepared for those who love him, for that we cannot possibly have any words yet. As to what no one has experienced yet, we have only hopes and dreams framed in symbols and pictures which must not be taken too literally. The truth eludes our language and it transcends our pictures, which is a good thing. I'm glad that God is bigger than my best words to describe him. I am glad that God is bigger than my best efforts to picture him. If I could picture a God, what a poor, tiny God that would be. He's beyond all of that. Just as the future he has intended for you and for me is way beyond anything we can imagine or picture. So we've got to remain vague until the future catches up with us. We'll understand it better by and by, goes the old song. Yes, we'll understand a lot of things better by and by. And I suspect many a preacher will be sorely embarrassed by the nonsense he dished out down here, myself included. Nevertheless, there are a few things about the afterlife which are fundamentally bound up with the gospel and with our experience of Christ. One, God affirms life. God affirms life. Death is not the end. The purposes of God for the world, for you, for me, culminate in life. It's all about life. God was and always is the creator and the life giver. In him, we live and move and have our being. He can, he will give us life in the face of death. Remember this, especially when your way seems to be dark and hopeless. God gives life. And the channel of God's life is Jesus Christ, reigning in heaven, yet no no less alive and present within our hearts. He's there with you. And by his own resurrection from the dead, Jesus became the predecessor, the precedent the progenitor of a new humanity, whoever identifies with Christ 
shares in his new life now and will share in his life without end later. Two, God affirms, God affirms life and God affirms his material world. This stuff. Some people relegate God to some spirit sphere somewhere outside of our real world of blood, sweat, and dust. As if he were, he were a disembodied spirit uninterested in material things. Still others go farther, conclude all material and physical aspects of life must be unspiritual, inferior, or even outright evil. Bad flesh. Mm. And so they think the goal of life is to rise above all influences of this material existence, looking forward to leaving the material world for an immaterial existence with God after death. That's what many of the Gnostics thought in the second and third centuries A.D., and to some extent, that's what many of today's New Agers think. You hear this a lot on college campuses. But a crucial implication of the resurrection of the body is that God created this material world and he pronounced it good. In, in fact, that wasn't enough. By the end the time he wrapped it up, he said it's, you know, very good. It is, and it remains, fundamentally good. Even now, when it's been corrupted by human rebelliousness and sin, as God's creation, it is still good. Now, God is sovereign over the whole of creation, the spiritual and the physical. He shaped man and woman of mud and bone and breathed his ruach, that's his breath or his spirit, into them, intentionally creating a body-spirit hybrid. Christ is the Redeemer and the Lord of the whole person, spiritual and physical. There is nothing in our lives that is beyond the pale of his saving power and plan, physical and spiritual, now and in eternity. Three, third, God affirms, as I said, life, he affirms his material world. And third, God affirms our bodiliness. Our bodiliness. That's a hard word, I know. Say it three times. It, that is, as, as you are a God intended spirit body hybrid. And so you are an integrated totality. Everything's connected. 
And our, even our experience bears this out, doesn't it? You know, mental anguish, mental anguish can trigger what? Heart disease and ulcers. What? Wait a minute. My mental anguish, that's a spirit thing, that's a mind thing, but my, it affects your body because we're a totality. It's all connected. Emotional imbalance can contribute to physical uh, disability or addiction. Your spirit and your soul, that's your thoughts, your emotions, your will, are inseparable from your body. You know, whatever you do with your body has consequences for your spiritual state. It goes back and forth. What you do with your spirit, it impacts your body. The one interacts with the other. Spiritual reality is communicated how? Through physical means. That's why we baptize with water. You're not going to see anyone saying, well, I'm going to baptize you with spirit. With nothing there. We baptize with water. We eat bread and wine. When you're deeply burdened in your spirit, what do you do? You pray, what? On your knees. It's connected. When we want to heal and bless someone, what do we do when the government lets, when the government lets us? We lay on hands. And some of you will do that if you think the government's not watching. We find spiritual satisfaction and strength in these physical actions. They're connected. So, just as in Paul's thinking, a life must have a body. That is, it has to have a place and a center. A bodiless spirit is like a cup of water without the cup. Do you hear me? A bodiless spirit is like a cup of water without the cup. It runs through your fingers, it's dissipated, it's lost. A body gives the spirit a face, an identity. A body gives your spirit eyes to see and hands to do. How much of your own identity is inseparable from the body in which and through which you live? You know, when, when I hear it, especially from academic types who want to tell us that, that the real, you know, that, that want to make fun of Christians' belief in the resurrection of the body or they're trying to get away from the body, they're not being intelligent and insightful. They're being naive because they're denying their own physicality. They're trying to escape from the fact that they are, whatever else they may be, they are a body. 
And many of them hate their bodies. That's not the gospel. How you look, your health, or your unhealth, they influence who you are and how you think of yourself. It's, it has a formative uh, impact on you as you were growing up. If you were the little kid who always got picked last for softball and got sent out to left field, it's going to impact who you are and who you become. These are things that have had an important role in conditioning who we grow up to be. The work you do, the food you eat, the conceiving and birthing of the children you love, all of these things are inseparable from your bodily existence. These things, hear me now, these things do not limit you. They define you. They do not limit you. They define you. They shape you. That's how God created you. And Christ died to redeem that whole person. So in the resurrection, the whole person will be restored to wholeness. Fourth, God guards your individuality. God guards your individuality. <coughs> your body provides the physical coherent center for your identity and your being. Your body is the unique and distinctive part of what you are, where you are, who you are. Like your fingerprints, you are, in body and spirit, one of a kind and intended so by God. Death, on the other hand, represents the dissolution of who you are. The death of the body doesn't so much free you as it threatens you. Death is trying to annihilate you, trying to erase you. The resurrection of the body means that your personal unity and identity will be restored. You'll not be simply absorbed into some anonymous world soul or spirit melting pot. Each of us will remain an identifiable entity. We might not look quite the same. I'm, I'm kind of counting on that myself. We may not look quite the same or have the same mannerisms or tics. My wife will be grateful for that. But we will regain our personal identity. We will know who we were and who we are more perfectly than we ever could in this life. Amen. And this is important. God has created you in your individuality. 
He made each one different and distinctive, and he respects and upholds that individuality to the death and beyond. Five, perhaps most importantly, God guarantees the continuity. God guarantees the continuity. The continuity from this life to the next is not based on some eternal, autonomous soul that exists, you know, on its own, apart from God, and simply slips from one existence into another. It's not based on anything that I am or anything in me. And boy, am I glad for that. You see, Scripture doesn't teach that kind of immortality of the soul or the self, nor nor is there some kind of spiritual body, you know, hidden somewhere in or under our physical body, you know, like Superman's leotards hidden beneath the starched white shirt of Clark Kent. It's not, here I come. And I come out. No, not quite like that. You see, our new self, our new self will be a newly created. Did you hear that in Paul's, what Paul was talking about? Will be a newly created spiritual body determined by the Holy Spirit. He says, God gives it a body as he has chosen. God gives it. You see, God is always, and he remains forever, the one source of life. The theologian Paul Tillich put it this way, that God alone is the one ground of all being. That is, all that is receives its form and its existence from him. From him, always. What assures the continuity between this old creation and the new creation to come is alone the purpose and the plan and the power of God. And that's a good thing. It doesn't depend on you or me, it depends on God. And He's all wise, and He is eternal. And he's all-powerful. God remains true to his plan for creation, true to his promises, true to his plan for you and for me. Our continuity, the person we were in this life and the person we will be in the next, is assured by God's own respect for your individuality. Because God made you to be who you are, and he respects that individuality. God will make sure you continue to be who he made you to be. But he is going to help you become all you can be. The afterlife 
we could say, is grounded upon providence. And the resurrection is the final triumph of God's providence. You know, it's the old ancient, that ancient funeral liturgy affirms, just as God has cared for you throughout this earthly existence, he will care for you beyond the bounds of vision. You see, bodies will be provided. A new, perfected, glorified self will be yours in and through Jesus Christ. Whether, whether we're going to need those teeth, we can't say. But when we sit at table with Abraham and the prophets and the patriarchs in the kingdom of God, to use again our inadequate earthly pictures, you can be sure our only golden crowns will be on our heads and not in our mouths. Let's pray. God, we stand in awe of your great love that you have loved us so much in body and mind and spirit that you want us to live with you forever and that you sent your very son, Jesus Christ, in a body, to die in a body and to rise again with a body so we can be redeemed and one day raised to new life in and with him and transformed into a new heavenly existence. Thank you that we will be who you made us to be, but in a glorified way that actually brings honor to you for eternity. And now as we live here, Lord, we ask we might live in this hope, in this certainty, that because you live, we will live with you. And all these days that we live, help us to do it to your glory, to your honor, testifying to the God who made us, redeemed us, and will bring us to everlasting life in the resurrection of the body. We ask this through our Savior and Lord. Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.